Today's Bible reading is taken from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. And I invite Brandon up. All right. Well, first let me just say welcome from my side as well. This is actually my first time to be up here in Church at Five uh, this year, so I'm excited. And if you don't know, I see some new faces. Uh, if you are new here, I'm Brandon. I'm one of the elders here of this church of Calvary Chapel. Uh, but my primary responsibility is to be the service pastor here. So honestly, my primary responsibility is you guys. And uh, I'm very, very thankful for that. Uh, and I'm excited to be here with you today as we worship together. It was nice there, that last song, heard some voices. Uh, so that's always nice to be singing loud to the Lord. And uh, now we're going to be looking at his word so that we can learn and grow together. And I believe that God wants to use this service this week and every week uh, to equip us. That's our goal here. We want to be equipped to be sharpened, to be prepared for what God is calling us to do as disciples of Christ. And so with that in mind, I want to just begin by giving this time over, giving this sermon over to him in prayer. Father, I thank you so much that you have given us your word with its power, with its authority that speaks into our life, that cuts to our hearts. I pray that it would do so today as we uh, step into something new today. I pray that you would soften our hearts to what you want to teach us and equip us with that we may be ready to be used by you for your name and for your glory. Amen. Now, if you are new, uh, today is a great day to be joining because we are starting a new series, Kingdom Parables. You can see behind me there. Uh, and today, I want to just kind of lay down some foundations a little bit, lay down some groundworks for the series, uh, although we will, won't get too in-depth. So as we go through some of these things, I'm going to whiz over some pretty big kind of concept, some big ideas, some big topics. Uh, pr I promise we'll be unpacking a lot of it later on in the series, so you can uh, come up and ask me questions if you have them, but uh, I promise that I'm not just neglecting certain things that need to be said, I think. Uh, so we're going to kind of just get a little bit into understanding a little bit of what, this, what the kingdom parables are about, but then we will dive into our text that we had read with these two kingdom parable examples and hopefully some application that we can take with us in our life. So let's dive in, as they say. Uh, kingdom parable. Let's define that just a little bit here at the start, and maybe if you're like kind of new, or maybe you just you're kind of maybe even new to Christianity. I don't know. You might be like Kingdom Para. What are you talking about? I've I've never heard any of these concepts before. I don't know what you're going on about. I would say for the most part, most of you will be familiar with the idea of a parable, or familiar with the use of parables throughout the Gospels, particularly. But if not, I would say we'll read through Matthew, Mark, or Luke, especially because they're everywhere. 
Uh, they're everywhere. It's almost uh, frustrating if you're, if you're trying to avoid them. They're all throughout, uh, all throughout Jesus' teaching. He uses parables again and again. Now, parables, in a nutshell, is just the use of a story or an image to convey a deeper and often moral message, right? I always think, when I think of outside of the Bible, the first one that always comes to mind is the boy who cries wolf. I don't know. You guys know that one. I was taught that uh, also as a kid, uh, don't lie. Are you crying wolf? So these are the things, and they, if you have heard it growing, if you heard it as a kid uh, and you remember it, that's the idea. That's the idea of a parable, is it takes a concept and it puts it in your mind in a way that it's hard to forget, or maybe I just heard it many, many times. That could also be. Uh, some of the parables, though, that we see in the, in the Gospels especially are pretty straightforward. They're, they're conveying a moral message or a warning of some kind. I think especially if we look through the parables that we see in like the Sermon on the Mount, some of them are, are fairly straightforward, but others are much more complex. And they have multiple layers that we can continue to unpack. And I think, when we, especially when we look at the kingdom parables that we're going to be getting into over the next few weeks, this is what we're going to see. These are not always as straightforward as they appear. They have a straightforward meaning, but there's layers to them that we can unpack. What's important to understand as we're reading through any of Jesus' parables is that they do require discernment. They require discernment, and we want to ask the Lord for that discernment. In Luke 8, Luke chapter 8, verse 9 through 10, it says, and when, when his disciple, sorry, and when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, so first of all, that encourages us, right, that we can ask, we can come to the Lord in prayer, we can say, hey, I'm struggling with this, like, or sometimes you read a parable and you read commentaries and there's like 10 different opinions. Uh, Lord, we can, we can come to him and we can say, Lord, we want to know what this means. We want to see how this applies in our life. And so we can come to him and ask. And then in verse 10, he says, and he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So we see this distinction, but I want to I just shed some light on what I believe that we can unpack from his, what his meaning is there. Because we can ask, well, why is that? Why is it hearing they don't understand? Well, I would say a lot of people, if you read some of the parables on, to people on the street, they're not going to understand what they mean. They don't have what we have as believers, as disciples. So how are those people meant to understand? How, is, how are they supposed to be, kind of, to be able to come to an understanding? Well, the good news is, first of all, we today, as disciples, we can come to the Lord. And we can trust that we have the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. We have the full canon of Scripture before us to help us to understand the parables that Jesus has preached. But I would say, I want to add to that, that right after this, right after he gives them this, this answer, Jesus gives another parable about a lamp. A lamp that is not meant to be hidden. It's not meant to be covered by a jar. How, how silly it would be, how foolish it would be to turn a lamp on and then cover it with something that prevents the light from shining. A lamp is meant to shine. It's meant to radiate outward, meaning we want to seek to understand these parables through the Holy Spirit, through the revelation that we have in Scripture, but we also are meant to shine that truth to the world, to shine the truth within the parables outward. So the point is, and I want to say this just as a four, kind of foresight as we head into looking at parables over the next uh, few weeks, that any time we're reading any of the parables, we want to approach the parables of Jesus, it's important for us to come with this reliance on the discernment of the Holy Spirit. 
That's where it begins. And the reliance and the trust in the revelation of the word of God, that we use the word of God to define and understand the terms that Jesus uses, and a desire to share that truth to con- that, these, that these parables convey to the world around us. So let's just have that in our mindset as we approach the parables. Now, when we talk about parables, of all the types of parables, if you wanted to kind of categorize them that Jesus uses when he's teaching, one that you will see often, I would say, and I see 13 distinct uses of this, is the kingdom parables. The kingdom parables. What is a kingdom parable? What, uh, how, how do we define a parable as a kingdom parable? If you didn't know, here's some information for you. So these are the parables that usually begin with something to the effect of the kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven is like, depending on your translation, some of, and sometimes it's phrased like, uh, from, to what shall we compare the kingdom? Basically, we, it, we kind of basically come down to these two categories. So the kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven is like. And I would say, is there a difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? Why, why is it, and if, if not, then why is it used one way or the other? I'm gonna share this with you just because I found it interesting. If you're like, I'm not interested in that, you can zone out for about 10 seconds. Uh, essentially, no. Uh, they are exactly the same thing, and I think this is, this is good to know. This is important to understand if you didn't know that. Uh, and the reason that we have two versions of this phrase is because of the intended readers, right? So Matthew, he uses kingdom of heaven every time he references these parables because heaven was a well-established, understood concept by the Jews. They, they had an idea of heaven. They believed in heaven, so they grasped the concept of a kingdom of heaven, and they had been prepared for a long time for the coming of the kingdom of heaven. So with that in mind, we also can tie that in with the fact that Matthew is writing primarily to the Jews. On the other hand, Luke and Mark, especially, they use the term kingdom of God. Uh, because most of their writings were directed towards the Roman world. And kingdom of heaven would have, had, would have made little sense to them. Uh, they wouldn't have really understood exactly what that's talking about. They didn't really have a concept of heaven, not like the Jews did. Uh, on the other hand, they did have a pretty good grasp on deities or a god. They believed in gods. So the idea of a kingdom of God, that kind of made more sense to them. And that's why we see those two distinctions. But for us today, we can see these interchangeable. Like We can look at both of them, although we will be mostly looking in Matthew where we see the phrase kingdom of heaven. Now, the other question would be, why should we, why should we take time for these particular parables? Why, why do a series on this? Why, why should we be looking at these kingdom parables? What's, what's, what's unique about them? What's special about them? Well, in short, because Jesus spent a lot of time talking about them. This is one particular type that we see used again and again and again. He compares things to the kingdom and, of, and I would say, and so first of all, of all the parables, right, we see these, three, these thir- used 13 times, this distinct type of parable. But in addition to that, the kingdom of heaven is referenced 31 times in Matthew alone. It's talked about a lot. Seems to be like there's, there's something that we should understand here. There's something that we should be paying attention to and at least try to grasp because Jesus is trying to make sure that we get it. He talks about it a lot. And this brings us then to the bigger question that we'll loosely kind of uh, define a bit uh, before we get to our text. And that is, what is the kingdom of heaven? 
or the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of God? Have you given any thought to that? Is, there, is this like, some of you are like, yeah, I know all this, or is this like totally new information? Yeah, some of you. I just feel I'm getting blank stares all throughout. I feel like I'm giving a lecture on some really boring topic here. This is important stuff. Jesus found it important, so we want to think about what is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of God? Well, I think we can first put it simply, it is the realm or the kingdom over which God reigns and rules. So when we say kingdom of God, when we say the kingdom of heaven, we can first define it that way. In a very broad sense, it's all things fall under the authority of God, therefore everything in creation could be considered as part of his kingdom. He is Lord of lords, King of kings, ruler of all things, creator of the universe. So of course, in one sense, everything falls under his jurisdiction as king. But this, of course, is an oversimplification. I feel like Jesus wouldn't need to use so many parables and talk about it in so many different ways if that was the end of the explanation. When we look at the kingdom parables, it's clear that Jesus is making a much more distinct description of this kingdom. He's going to unpack it in specific ways. In fact, the kingdom, uh, that the way it's described, especially through these parables, has many facets and many attributes that define it. There's many different angles he's going to take in helping us to understand it, to grasp it. This seems to be the primary purpose of the kingdom parables, to teach us about the kingdom. We need to understand this. And because of that, I'm, just to be clear, as I said already, we're not going to unpack all of those defining attributes today. I don't want to unpack all of that because that's going to be the point of this series. That's what we're trying to, be, trying to focus on over the next few weeks. As we look through the parables, we want to be kind of, building this concept that Jesus is trying to paint for us of what the kingdom of heaven is about. What is it like? Who is a part of that kingdom? Who rules in that kingdom? How should we interact as part of that kingdom? How should this affect us today? So we want to be unpacking that over the next few weeks. And I hope that it will become more clear and that we'll be able to bring this concept more into focus, that the looks won't be quite so blank in the weeks to come as we unpack what this kingdom is really about, because it's important for us to know. The parables will teach us about the nature of the kingdom, about the nature and the identity of the king, and also the citizens of this kingdom. Now, there are three things, though, I do want to establish before we get to our text, things I want to establish about the kingdom of heaven uh, that I'll just kind of go through fairly quickly, uh, but I do want to take this time because, and the idea of this is to kind of have some kind of concept, some, some understandings that when we look at these parables that we approach them with some foreknowledge of what the kingdom is about. And there are, I think, three things that I kind of narrowed it down from many more uh, I narrowed it down to three things that I think are important for us to grasp. Number one is that the kingdom has come. The kingdom has come. Right? The very first mention of the kingdom, of this kingdom of heaven, in the book of Matthew, is in Matthew 3, verse 2. And this is John the Baptist talking. And he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's at hand. It's here. It's, it's, we're right on the threshold of it. John the Baptist was called and 
anointed to be one who prepared the way. He's preparing the way. He's setting the stage for the coming of the Messiah and the coming of the kingdom that had been promised, that they had, they had been hearing about it and kind of hearing these kind of prophecies about for, for centuries at this point. And here's John the Baptist saying, it's here. Now's the time. Repent, for the kingdom has come. And Jesus himself echoes these exact same words in Matthew 4. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God had been preparing the Israelites for the coming of the kingdom, going all the way from the the promises given to Abraham through the prophecies of of Daniel. We see uh, already glimpses of a kingdom. We see uh, glimpses of the kingdom in Isaiah and many of the other prophets. And now all the way to this, right at the door, and the proclamations of John the Baptist that through the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven has come. And Jesus makes this clear when he himself speaks these words. Now I wanna be clear that yes, and we will unpack this a bit in the weeks to come, but yes, that there is this kind of future revelation and realization of the kingdom in a physical sense. There's this kind of future hope. I'll touch on that a bit more in a second. But I want us to first have this sense of the reality that the kingdom that was promised has arrived through Christ, which brings us to number two. So first, the kingdom has come to Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. The kingdom of heaven has come through Jesus because he is the king. Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. And one of my favorite verses on just the authority of Jesus as King of Kings is Colossians 1. I'll read just verse 15 through 17. There's a bigger passage you can look at there. But, uh, so he is the image of the invisible God. So he's taking the invisible and making it visible. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If we're talking about a kingdom... There's no question who's in control. There's no question who is the ruler who has been given power and authority over all things. And as we approach the kingdom parables, we must bring this knowledge with us of who the king of this kingdom is. If we want to understand the parables of the kingdom, we need to know who the king is. So the kingdom has come. Jesus is king. And number three, the kingdom, and I'm going to add to this, it's kind of an asterisk here. So among other things, the kingdom, among other things, is a spiritual kingdom. Among other things, it is a spiritual kingdom. And I add that among other things because as we'll look at in the parables, we'll see a lot of these different attributes and facets of what makes up the kingdom, both now and in the future glory that we hope for. But it is a spiritual kingdom. The Israelites thought that the kingdom would come and just bring in this like thing, massive changes, like the, the Roman Empire just crushed, new king rising up. They saw it as a political movement, many of them. But Jesus is Lord. He's also creator. 
He is the one who is before all things, in all things. All things are held together by him. So he has a bigger perspective than current political agendas. I can say thank you, God, for that. He's bigger than that. He's bigger than now. He's bigger than then. He's bigger than the future. He is always. He has always been. He will always be. He has an eternal perspective. Now there will be a day when every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will have their eyes opened and see that's the king. And he will establish his kingdom here on the earth. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And we will be given new bodies as citizens of this future kingdom. As it says in Philippians 3. Philippians 3 verse 20 through 22. But our citizenship... So this is for those who believe, those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and follow him as disciples. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself." So this is talking about the glorious future hope that we have as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But we're not there yet. This is not a perfected body. I am absolutely positive. Now we live in a season of grace. And we can be thankful for that season of grace. We can be thankful that Jesus didn't just come and establish his kingdom in some mighty way right then and there and just forget about everything else. We live in this time that we are now invited to be in, in that kingdom with him. He didn't shut the doors. We're in a season of grace where the light of Christ continues to shine on all those who will be called by him into glory. So what does that mean then for us? What does this mean when we look at this kingdom now as the spiritual kingdom? As Christians, we are called to make the invisible spiritual kingdom of God visible in this world. We're that light. We're what shines. We're what makes the invisible visible. In Acts 1, I'm not going to read this. In Acts 1, if you want it for your notes, Acts 1, verse 6 through 8, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him about the restoration. So they're like, okay, you're the Messiah. You came. So, you know, when's Rome falling? <laughs> they don't say it that way. They're like, when are you going to establish Israel? When are you going to reestablish Israel and kind of bring things up? You know, we're ready for the new kingdom. Like, what's going on? They're ready for this physical manifestation of the kingdom. Thankfully, we, he didn't do that because we then get to experience a season of grace. And Jesus responds by comforting them. He's like, nobody, you don't get to know that. You don't get to know when I'm going to do that. I'm paraphrasing. You can read it yourself. But he then, he then comforts them with the promise of the Holy Spirit. He says, wait, the Holy Spirit's coming. So the kingdom parables, a lot of what we'll see is, is kind of like a, something that's all-encompassing within them. The kingdom parables are about God's kingdom reflected here on the earth. What it looks like now. What it looks like in our day and age. So when people encounter us as believers, they have encountered the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven, because they have encountered the king. Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, dwells within us, walks with us. He will be with us to the end of the age. He is with us always. And so to be 
a Christian is to be Christ-like, is to be a Christ-like person, a representative of your king. This is the nature of the kingdom. And as we begin to look at the kingdom parables, we need to have this in our minds. We need to keep this in our foresight to remember that the kingdom has come. That's good news. But it's still a spiritual kingdom that we represent here on the earth. And that Jesus is king over that kingdom. And we as his disciples, we're citizens of that, of that heavenly kingdom. But we're called to reflect his glory here on the earth. Each parable that we look at will give us this insight into the nature of the kingdom as we deepen our understanding of how we represent our king in this kingdom today. That's our hope. That's the idea. Okay, you guys ready? Ready to get into the text? Some of you are like, all right, whatever. That was fine. Let's, let's get into the good stuff now. By the way, that's the idea behind that uh, strange, interesting uh, graphic, the reflection. Just uh, I thought I'd explain that in case you were like, what happened there? Did he like stand on his head while he prepared that? So that's the idea. We're going to look at these parables and see how we can reflect the kingdom that we're a part of, that we're citizens of here on the earth, and what's to expect, what to look for, what to understand. Now, with that, let's get into our first two examples. And I think with these two, we see a glimpse of the kingdom as a picture of its discovery in our life. It's comforting. It's an encouraging set of parables we get to look at. The parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great value. Now, as we look at each of these individually, I think there are two ways that we can interpret them. And uh, I would say first would be from the, I think the kind of natural way is in our human natures to look at it first in this kind of uh, perspective of personal application, looking at it and how we can apply it to our lives and how we enter the kingdom. And I do want to look at that. I want to kind of unpack a little bit of how that looks in those parables, but it also points us to the work of Christ. And so I also want to show you that image in these parables. So the first is the parable of the hidden treasure. Let me read it again, just in case you've forgotten. It was a while ago we read. So this is from Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, first of all, it wasn't uncommon for people to uh, buried treasure, you know, it sounds very piratey, you know, looking for buried treasure. Um, there was no central bank system, so if you had like suddenly inherited a great wealth or whatever, you didn't want your neighbors kind of maybe uh, finding out about it or robbers coming, you might go and bury it in a field somewhere. The problem is maybe you die and don't tell uh, your next of kin who's, where you buried it or maybe you forget where you buried it. So it, wasn't, it was possible that uh, this could actually happen. This would maybe be something that people could understand. But even though it wasn't like uncommon for people to bury treasure, the chances of discovering a great treasure was still like one in a million chance. That's the image here. This is not something like just digging in a field and then stumbling onto like the, this massive treasure. This is something amazing. Here we have a man who is just, he's working someone else's field. He's just a hired hand. He's just some guy doing his job. You know, maybe he's out there plowing the field to, uh, to plant something, or maybe he was out there digging a well. He's just kind of messing around in the dirt, doing whatever he's supposed to be doing, and then by chance discovers a great treasure. 
Without question, though, on, on, as he gazes on this treasure, as he, as he kind of glances down, maybe he's looking down in a hole. That's what I picture. Maybe he's digging a hole there, and he's, whoa. He, he, he knows without question that this treasure is of greater value than anything and everything that he possesses. It is a treasure worth giving up everything else to obtain. Now, it says that he found it, and then he covered it up. Uh, this... This is an interesting thing. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, during that time, if you were uh, in a field, if you were working in a field and you did find something of value and you took it out of the ground, it was the property of the owner of that field. But if you didn't take it out of the ground, then it was still kind of free game. You could buy the field and, and then own also the treasure within. This is interesting. He's careful. He's wise. This is a treasure he must have. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Today we have set before us the great treasure of the gospel of Christ. That Jesus Christ died for our sins. And when we put our faith in him, we receive eternal life. We sang through the whole understanding of the gospel in that last song we sang. We have it before us as this great treasure. This also this parallels or reminds me of the young, the rich young ruler. If you don't know the story, a rich young man comes to Jesus, and he he's eager to be a disciple. He's eager to follow Jesus, and he says, "What must I do to be saved?" And Jesus says, "Well, do you do you obey the commands and?" Interestingly, he says he obeys all the laws, which shows us that he doesn't really understand what's going on there. And then Jesus says, okay, good. You've done well. Now, sell your belongings, give them to the poor, and then come follow me. But the man walks away sad because he had a lot of stuff. He had a lot of stuff. He's like, ooh, all my stuff. Now, the point is not that we must give away all of our things. We don't earn salvation. You can't give away enough stuff to be good enough to enter into the kingdom. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's a question of value. It's a question of value. Now, what is value? What does it mean? What is, what is value? Value is the subjective worth we place on something. It's how much something is worth, or I would say how much something is worth differs greatly depending on what we value, right? I've got a car, it's, about, it's over 20 years old, it's pretty beat up, I've got three kids, it's, it runs great, but it's not in great shape, and if, you wanted to, if I wanted to sell it to you, it probably wouldn't be worth very much to you. You'd look at it, you'd see the dents, you'd see the scratches, you'd be like, mm. you'd see the things that I repaired myself, you'd be like, I don't know about this one, I don't know, it, it, I don't think it's worth very much. It doesn't have very much value. But for me, I need that car. I need it for my family. I need it to get to work. I need it to get around. I need it to buy groceries. So for me, it has great worth because I value it. So it has more value to me than it would to anyone else. See, the rich young ruler, he valued the wrong things. He wanted salvation. He wanted to follow Jesus. He valued it. He just didn't put enough value on it. He didn't value it as much as he wanted to keep his stuff, not as much as he loved the things of this world. And the Bible makes this clear in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In some translations, I like this, I think it's important to understanding, the love for the Father is not in him. We can't, we can't love the Lord, we can't love the Lord with all of our mind, heart, soul, and strength when we also really, really love our stuff. All of the things of this world will fade away. They will all turn to ash and dust. Nothing will remain. But our salvation is eternal. We cannot follow Jesus and put a higher value on the things of this world. There should be nothing in this life that we would not be willing to cast away for the greater surpassing value of Jesus, of knowing him and being known by him. We must be willing to surrender our life as a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is one image that we see in this parable. As I mentioned, we can take two points of view. Beyond the personal application, let's also look at how this points us to Jesus. Because yes, we know that we should be willing to surrender everything to follow Jesus. But it helps when we understand the reality that we can only do so. We can only even have that as a thought or an idea. We can only step into that. We can only surrender to him because he first surrendered everything to save us. He first gave up everything. In this understanding of the parable, Jesus is the man in the field. And he discovers us as his treasure. And although we belonged to the wickedness of our sin, in the ground, in the dirt, under the authority of the owner of the field, the owner and ruler of this world, the devil, Jesus, with the joy that was set before him, went and gave away everything he had, even to his own life, dying on a cross as a sinner to purchase the whole world. And he died for the whole world so that he may gain the treasure of the church, his disciples. He didn't just buy the treasure. He didn't just sneak. He paid for everything so that he could own the treasure of his disciples. We are the treasure he found and greatly desired. He greatly desired us. The kingdom of heaven is entered at great sacrifice. But it is first the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who gave his perfect, obedient life to be the sacrifice so that we may inherit his righteousness as he paid the price for our sin. Only then, secondly, do we see the second level of sacrifice, that if we want to follow Jesus, we must be willing to sell all the things of this world away. We must be willing to sacrifice as he was willing to sacrifice for us, not to earn our salvation, but merely to demonstrate that we understand it. Because when we understand the value of the gospel and what Christ has done for us and what he paid for us, what is there in this life that equals its worth? It's good to think about these things. And I think we see that even more when we look at this second parable. Let's look at the second parable, the parable of the pearl of great value. Let me read it again. This is Matthew 13, 45 through 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search 
of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now clearly we see some overlap. I think that's why we usually put these two together. The idea of casting away all things, of surrendering uh, whatever we have uh, for the surpassing value of the kingdom. We see the same image here, so I won't go into that as much, but I do want to point out some distinctions between the two that I think uh, paint us a nice picture of our own salvation. See, number uh, first would be the, the, the worker found the treasure, and the merchant was searching for it. So we see two different kind of methods of discovery. See, some come to a knowledge of the truth through what might appear to be random. These are, these are people who aren't, aren't, aren't necessarily looking for it. Maybe someone invites them to church. Maybe it's a pamphlet, or maybe they stumble onto a YouTube channel or an evangelist, and they hear about the gospel. They, they hear about this truth, and, and, and it resonates with them. They see this as a treasure, as something to be sought after. The worker was not looking for the treasure, but he found it. It was presented to him, which reminds us of the importance of going and sharing the gospel with the world, of telling people about Jesus, knowing that you never know when it's going to be that moment that they see it as treasure, and they desire it, and they want to seek after it, but they just maybe haven't been exposed to it. So we see this idea of, of kind of stumbling onto it, of it, it kind of being presented to them, digging in the right spot at the right time. The merchant, though, now first of all, the merchant, that's just somebody who, that means he, he dealt in the, in the buying and selling of pearls. What does that tell us about him? Well, he's a professional. He, he knows this stuff. He, he's been around pearls. He's seen many, many pearls, and he's kind of made it a part of the, the life goal to, to always be looking for the greatest pearl, the next best pearl that he can find. He's a, a collector. He has many, many pearls that, that, that he's collected over the years, and he's a professional. He's seen many pearls, so he knows what he's looking for. He sees the difference between a good and a bad pearl. These two examples show us something interesting. See, the worker comes to a knowledge of faith in Christ having no background in belief, not really looking for it, but being invited to it, discovering it as this treasure, and upon realizing its value, gives up everything in the world to obtain this treasure. The merchant, though, he knows about pearls. He's seen them, he's, and he's searching for something. He's searching for that perfect pearl. This describes someone I, I see as coming from a background of faith, somebody who has an understanding of faith, who's, who's maybe experienced different understandings of belief, whether it's the writings of Muhammad or a pursuit of nirvana or the rituals of, of worshiping many gods or maybe just this simple sense of spirituality or being one with the universe. There's all these different pearls. We live in a time where people have collected many pearls for themselves, many understandings of belief, many understandings of faith. But we cannot take these beliefs with us when we follow Jesus. And when we see Jesus, they pale in comparison. The merchant knows this. And so laying aside all of the past, all the pursuits, all the gathering, all the pearls that he had collected for many years, they're sold, they're retired to purchase this one great pearl, this pearl of great value. Now, pearls uh, were of great value in general, 
right? Because, and to find a, a, a rare one was something special. They weren't farmed like they are today. It was, it was difficult. They were much more rare than they are now. And this pearl made an impression. It made an impact. It made all the other pearls seem dull in comparison. Their shine faded in comparison to this pearl that without question, I am gonna, I'll get rid of everything so that I can have that pearl. I don't know your background or maybe the background of the people around you when you're talking about Christ. It's good to have this as our, in our minds when we're thinking about these things. That we have, there are Many of us have many different backgrounds when it comes to spiritual influences that we might have had. I want to encourage you that when we read through the Bible, when we read Scripture, when we read the Gospels, we begin to discover the pearl. And when we begin to understand that pearl and see it in its true value, everything else, all other beliefs fade in comparison. See, the pearl is not a thing. It's not a concept or an idea. It's not, it's not just this idea of belief or this idea of Jesus. It's, it's not a place. It's not an experience. It's a person. The pearl is a person. A person that we can know and be known by. Jesus says that when we love him, we're, we're going to obey him. We're going to follow him. We're going to be willing to, to lay down everything else in our life, rejecting all other things that we can be after him alone. Whatever things that we bring with us, when we come to that place of seeing Christ, we'll quickly lay them aside. Whether you discovered the gospel through seemingly random events or have been searching for many years for something deeper, a greater meaning in life, a spiritual understanding that makes sense. The answer is Jesus. And he's worth surrendering everything for. Here's what I hope that you leave with today as we prepare for this series, as we conclude the point that we see in these first examples of kingdom parables. And this, I would say, let me say this as something that it doesn't matter if, if this is like completely new to you or you've been walking with Jesus for many, many years. We need to have times where we ponder and remember that Jesus treasures you. That Jesus treasures you. Jesus sees you as a pearl of great value. So much so that he gave up everything to pay the price for the whole world that he may own you as his own, that he may call you by name into his kingdom. You will never, you will never know love like the love of Christ. Nothing compares to the love of Christ for us. And when we begin to understand who he is in his word and experience him as we walk with him in prayer, as a disciple following after him, seeking to be like him, being transformed by the Holy Spirit, we begin to day by day more and more realize this. And we see the cost that, that it is 
the cost that, it, that we have to pay to follow him. But it is a cost that is worth paying because there's nothing in this life that we value more. No place that we wouldn't go. Nothing that we wouldn't do. Nothing that we wouldn't give up to be with Jesus because we know how we are loved by him. Now I would say, if you walk away sad from this truth, as the rich young ruler did, because you don't want to give up your sin. You don't want to give up the things that you love to do that you see are counter to what are taught in Scripture. Because you don't want to give up your previous beliefs. You're like, I like, I want to add Christianity, Christianity onto the other things that I believe because I don't want to give those up. I like, I like this, I like that. Or maybe you don't want to give up your love for the world. Like, I don't know what, this scares me. What if Jesus tells me I have to like give up my dreams or my ambitions in my work or in my career or my education? There's no way I could give that up. Then you're gonna go away sad, not understanding the value of Christ. And I'm not saying that you have to give those things up. But if your fear is, what if I had to? Then you don't get it. You haven't understood the value. You haven't understood how loved you are. You haven't understood the sacrifice that was made for you. And so I would encourage you to examine your heart, to read through the Gospels, search for the pearl of great value, because when you see Jesus for who he is and understand how he sees you with joy, you will gladly surrender everything for the surpassing value of following him. This is the nature of the kingdom. We enter by sacrifice. First, through his sacrifice for us, then our sacrifice of dying to ourselves to obtain new life. Amen. We invite the band to come up and close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these parables that we can study and seek to understand through the revelation of your spirit and your word. I pray that this would be a truth today that sinks into our hearts, whether we've been walking with you for many years or a few days. We don't want to lose sight of the value. We don't want to lose sight of the value that you've placed on us, calling us treasure, being willing to die for our sakes. And we don't want to lose sight of the value of who you are in our life, that we would always be willing to sacrifice whatever would stand in our way that would prevent us from coming closer to you. May you teach us this, to, this week, this night, that we would follow you well and be used by you greatly. Amen. I invite you now to stand as we close in worship.